So are we going to do a professional introduction this week? Well, if we do, what are we going to say? We're going to say, hello and welcome. This is the third Virtual Pair Programmers podcast where we're talking all things Java. My name is Matt Greencroft. And I'm Richard Chesterwood. And if you've joined us for the third time, thank you. Welcome. That wasn't bad, was it? It was a pretty good start. <laughs> it's definitely our best yet, but then three our out of three. <laughs> they have been very poor so far, so just poor is, is quite an improvement. It certainly is. It certainly is. So what are we talking about this week? Well, when we started the idea of doing a podcast, one of the reasons we went for every two weeks was my thinking was in a two-week cycle, there's going to be plenty of news to report. And what we've discovered is, in Java, in two weeks, nothing happens. I can't find any interesting news that's happened in the past two weeks. I agree with you. I think there's been very little going on out there. Maybe it's quiet because people are waiting for Java 9 to complete. Yeah, but it, it could be the calm before the storm, possibly. It could be. It could be. So there is a lot a lot up in the air. But when you think of all of the other frameworks that we work with, I've been watching Spring, for example, and Spring 5 is, and it's been at release candidate stage for a long time, but I'm not sure what their time scale is. But you would think something like that would have dropped in the last two weeks, but alas, no. nothing. So something I have been reading about, and I know it's not new news as such, but it's the uh, ongoing legal dispute between oh. Oracle. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to make you groan. The ongoing legal dispute between Oracle and Google, or rather, I should say, so Google. No, but which way around is it? Oracle are Oracle are Oracle are suing Google. Yes. Yes, saying that they have infringed their copyright, and they're asking 8.8 .8 billion dollars, I believe. So, <laughs> ignoring the rights or wrongs of it for a moment. How does this even work? Because is Java open? I'm not sure if it's quite the right word, but is it open source? How how can Oracle own something that they can then claim Google's infringed on? How does that work with Java? All right. All of this is incredibly complicated. And there are lawyers currently charging more per hour than we earn in a year working through the ins and outs of this and obviously making very, very good careers out of it. Um, but I think, I, I suppose that there are, first of all, this bores me rigid, the whole thing of who owns what <laughs> and what are the legal implications. But there are some interesting technical aspects to this. Um, so effectively what you're asking now, I think, is is Java open source? Or if not, what, what's the relationship between Oracle and Java? That might be a good yeah. starting point. Yeah, well, actually, I think it's, instructive to go back in time and go all, all the way back to the start of Java. Uh, so Java, of course, was invented at Sun Microsystems, um, often attributed to James Gosling as being the father of Java, but I think it was actually more a team of people involved, and he was kind of, kind of their spiritual leader sort of thing. A, a bit like Pythagoras. So <laughs> he had a school of people working with him, but Pythagoras gets all the credit. Well, you have a much better education than I had. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not familiar Maybe with Maybe I that. was awake in that lecture. We, we were educated together, so... <laughs> well, you went to a, a better school than me before then but um but no it it it, uh, it was invented at sun microsystems for a very commercial purpose uh th their intention i mean sun were a very hardware centric company and their plan was to move into the area of set top boxes for televisions that's what they were after and that that was the whole purpose of the the java language originally was to have a kind of a uh, an, an architecture-neutral, platform-independent way of deploying code to embedded devices like set-top boxes. So it was developed at Sun for a commercial reason and was proprietary software. It was, it was, never, it was not open source. Java was owned by Sun. Okay. The thing that confuses things is that right from the very beginning, Java was a free download. But it was free as in beer, not as in speech. So you could download it for free, but it didn't mean you could do whatever you wanted with it. You had to agree to the license conditions. Okay. Now, it is going back a long, long time, and too far back for me to remember, but um, 
for example, uh, the, the as I understand it, the main revenue stream for Java at Sun was licensing Java so that it could run on mobile phones. So if you were Nokia, for example, and you wanted to put a Java virtual machine on a Nokia phone, you had to pay Sun to do so. Right. Because the Java virtual machine was proprietary copyright software owned by Sun. Okay. As far as I know, and this is where I am a little bit sketchy for various historical reasons, I'm sketchy on this. But as far as I know, if you wanted to deploy your Java program to a server to install a Java virtual machine on a server that's running commercially, I believe a license fee was due to Sun for that as well. Okay. I suspect a lot of... I may be wrong on that. It may be that they waived the license fees for servers. So, but Sun obviously produced at the time a Java virtual machine mm -hmm. at a runtime, mm -hmm. but when did... So obviously IBM produce a runtime. So... The way it worked was, um, and again, this is only very roughly, I'm going to get some technical details wrong, but the idea was that a specification was produced of the virtual machine and the Java libraries as well. So in fact, the whole JDK had a kind of a specification. And if you as a commercial company wanted to implement that specification, you could do so and you could sell that you could sell, as you say IBM did, yeah. you could sell a virtual machine and you put the little Java logo on it if you satisfied the what was called the TCK, which was the Technology Compatibility Kit, which yeah. was basically a test suite okay. that you bought from Sun that you ran against your implementation, and if you've got a green bar on every single one of those tests, you've now been certified and you, and you can now sell it as a Java virtual machine or Java libraries. Okay, so effectively for IBM to produce their own JVM, they've had to pay Sun, as it was, Absolutely. a fee to be able to do that. Right. Absolutely, okay. and the, the TCKs were very expensive. Right. And prohibitively so, and that was the reason why there wasn't a vibrant market in JVMs. Yes, you had IBM, there were a couple of others, but really the Sun virtual machine was the only game in town. Okay. That changed around 2006, we think. We, we can be get, get a bit fluffy with the dates. But the then CEO of Sun, Jonathan Schwartz, was kind of a hippie guy and a nice guy. And I never kind of, he didn't sort of seem to fit the, the picture of a CEO of a company like Sun. But he announced that we're going to open source Java. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why they did that. It was obviously some kind of pressure that they had, but they decided to open source Java. So that's a really important milestone. Now, one of the problems with all this, as we were, as we were talking about on last week's podcast, is what is Java? What does Java mean? There's a Java virtual machine, there's a Java runtime, there's a Java class library. It means different things. And in this context, it meant they were going to open source the development kit. So they're going to open source the compiler, the virtual machine, and the libraries. It was by no means a kind of an overnight thing, a very difficult thing to do because... Uh, Java extends out into a lot of, I mean, they link with other libraries. So, for instance, as of today, we can talk about today, the, the, the JDK is, is open source. It's, on, it's licensed under the GNU public license, but there are still areas that are not open source. It's minor things like fonts right. for, the, for the graphical user interface. They can't, so if, if you use the, I'm not sure I want to get into this really, but there are effectively two versions of the JDK today that, uh, that are the official ones. There's the Open JDK, yes. which is the open source one, and there's the Oracle JDK. The reason I was kind of avoiding this is that they are pretty much the same. The Open JDK is the reference implementation. Right. So forget any idea that the Open JDK is kind of cut down or is lacking in some way or might crash or whatever. The first time I used an Open JDK in production, I was very nervous, but 
not a problem at all. Since Java 7, that is the reference implementation. The Oracle one has a bit of commercial proprietary licensed software wrapped up in it, things like fonts. Right. You get open source alternatives in the OpenJDK. Well, certainly, when we've been creating, uh, as an example, web applications that we're deploying to a server running Linux, we are going with the OpenJDK because it's just an easy thing to install on. Is that right? Yeah. So if we were deploying an app in 2006, which yes. thankfully is before virtual pair programmers, you had an absolute nightmare in installing Java to a, a Linux server was a nightmare for that reason. It certainly wasn't available in any of the repositories right. for Linux because it wasn't free. And as I say, what I'm not clear about is, I mean, thankfully, at 2006, I wasn't responsible for deploying or managing any Java runtimes. I've got a feeling, I would need to check this, but I've got a feeling that license fees would have been due. And I bet a lot of, like, serious big names were running Java virtual machines in production, and they probably should have been paying for them, but they weren't. Interesting. Um, okay. I'm not sure about that, but certainly for mobile phones, you absolutely had to license the virtual machine to run in a mobile phone. Okay. And just in case it's relevant, so Oracle bought Sun in 2010, I think. Did... Oh, I thought it was earlier. 2008, I've got in my head. Okay. But... Well, but did that change anything? Or There is a suggestion that possibly the reason that Oracle bought Sun was for exactly this reason. Uh, if, if you want a bit of background on this, there's a, an interview with, uh, with James Gosling, the founder of Java. Um, and he's quite a nice, softly spoken Canadian guy. He's very, very gentle and warm to listen to. But he, uh, he stuck through the whole process. He stayed with, with Sun when they were acquired by Oracle, and he stayed with them for a considerable period of time. And he talks very interestingly about he was at the meetings where the lawyers were meeting and he said their eyes were sparkling with glee. This is Oracle's lawyers when they realized about the patent situation with Google. So there is a, there is a suggestion from him that possibly that was the entire reason for the acquisition, that there is, there is a lot of untapped revenue from patents that were not paid for by Oracle. By Google, sorry. Right, I see. So, if so, so, so sorry, I'm stuttering a bit here. It, at the time that Google was creating Android, mm -hmm. Java wasn't open source at that Correct. point. Correct. So That's therefore, important. there was there was no question that it would have had to pay a license. They were supposed to pay a license, so right. they had discussions with, uh, with. It would have been Sun at the time, I think. Yeah. So I had discussions with Sun, and the figure that's in my head, and again, very sketchy, but it was going to be something like $26 million right. to license, which chicken feed, I mean, nothing. Um, and as James Gosling said after the fact, the lawyer's fees alone since then have been way more than that, so they should have just paid. Yes. But they didn't. They walked away from the deal, and what they did was they went and implemented their own virtual machine called Dalvik. Right. which they claim was a clean room implementation of the JVM. Now, I know you know about how clean room implementations work, but for the benefit of listeners out there, it's quite a common... M most famously, this was done with the IBM PC BIOS. So IBM invented PCs, and I mean the idea was other manufacturers would be able to plug into IBM PCs, but they owned the copyright on the BIOS, the underlying, the lowest level bit of software running you know, basically the firmware. Um, and I can't remember the name of the company. It might have been Phoenix. Do you remember the Phoenix BIOS? That I used do to remember might have been Phoenix, Phoenix or yeah, Ami BIOS. Or one of the others works out, well, what we could do, they did a very clever trick. It's called a clean room implementation. They got together some of their most senior engineers who were nearing retirement, and they got them to open up the BIOS software, look at it in detail, how it's implemented and so on, and they got those engineers to write down the API. Not the implementations, but the APIs. Okay. 
So these engineers designed an API spec and then these engineers were immediately rewarded with either lucrative retirement or management positions. So they're never going to do any technical work again. And then they throw this API document to some junior engineers who crucially have no connection whatsoever, cannot possibly have seen the internals of that original implementation. Oh, interesting. And yeah. then they go and build a brand new implementation just from the APIs. Okay. And then they argue in court that we haven't copied anything. It's quite an argument. It's quite a dodgy argument in many ways, but they won. And that's why suddenly you could get other manufacturers making PCs without breaking IBM's copyright. And is that effectively what's happening here? Is Google are claiming they've done a... They only work... Right. The, di the only difference here is the APIs are published because it's just the Java docs. Yes. We've all seen the APIs. So, and sorry, uh, and the specifications are available for the virtual machine as well. So that's what Google did. They reverse engineered from the, the, the published APIs, but we did not foul your implementation at all. And they won that argument in court many years ago now. Yes. This is why this whole subject bores me rigid. They won this argument many years ago in court. Uh, but it, as is often the case with legal battles, they then went and had another go two years later. And the second time around, uh, the judge sided with, and I've got lost now, the judge sided with, with Oracle. I've, I've lost track. Okay. Side with the other side anyway. Yes. And it keeps just going, going back backwards and forwards. So the latest one, I think, was the, the latest. It's going, it's going again, It's in basically. course again now. But, yeah. but so if you were coming along today as a brand new company, mm -hmm. wanting to create your own virtual machine for mm -hmm. your own embedded device, the, the new whatever the thing is that's going to replace mobile phones and tablets 10 years' time, would you need today to go and get a license from Oracle to do that? So the difference is now you can, the, the OpenJDK is open source. It's licensed under the GNU public license, the GPL. Right. So we'll, we'll go into detail about what that entails. Crucially, it's with the, it's what's called the linking exception. So we can talk a little bit about how GPL works, the GNU public license. So. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be using libraries that are licensed under the GNU licenses. Um, the, the, the full version of the GNU license is a very, uh, a very powerful license. It's called a viral license. What it means is if you use, if, 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 if you take a library that is licensed under the GPL, you are free to do whatever you like with it. You can extend it. You could you could just resell it. You could just, but what you can't do is ever close it. You can't change that license. You must any derivative work that you make from it, you must also license under the GPL. Okay. Now the problem with that has always been, so the OpenJDK is licensed in the GPL. What if I write, I'm going to write a Java program now that uses the Java class libraries. Are you saying that every single Java program now has to be GNU public licensed? But you don't because there's this thing called the linking exception. So if a product is licensed under the GPL with the linking exception, it's okay for you to write things on top of that library. Okay. You can then license your code in any way you like. You don't get infected by the GPL license okay. because that exception is built in. Um, so in your specific question, which was, can we, can we implement our own virtual machine and put it into our virtual pair programmers' mobile phones that we're manufacturing next week? Yes, is the answer. But we would have to maintain the GPL on our implementation of the virtual machine. Right, okay. But actually, there's nothing to stop us using the JDK. We don't have to create our own one. Correct, we don't have to create our own, or we could or we could use theirs and extend it. But again, it goes back to, there's, there's so many facets to this, it's very complicated to understand it all. But again, it comes down to what does Java mean? Now, one thing we would not be able to do is put on the front of that mobile phone 
the Java logo. Right. So you all know the Java logo, the little steaming coffee cup, very 1990s. They really should update that. <laughs> that coffee cup logo is a registered trademark owned by Oracle. Right. As is the name Java. So if you wanted to say your mobile phone was Java compatible, nope, you would have to pay Oracle. My, it's my understanding is you would have to pay Oracle to do that. You would have to run your code against that TCK. So how does that work with things like uh, other languages that are compatible with the Java Virtual Machine, so Scala and Clojure? Well, again, they're, they're, um, they're fine because of that linking exception. They are right. running, they have written their own compiler that is compiling bytecode that will run on a virtual machine but that's fine. The linking exception oh, I keeps you okay. separate from. Yes. And th and they'll pro so forgive me, but I forget what license Scala is licensed under. But it certainly doesn't have to be the GPL. Right. Okay. So there's there's trademarking and copyright issues around how you would then brand that. You could say it's Open JDK compatible or something like that. Right. Now. I'm fairly certain I've got some of that wrong, so I'm not a lawyer, and I don't care enough about this to be honest. But as a thought experiment, try we'll put put on your website. If any listeners have your own private website, put the uh, Java logo, the steaming coffee cup, on your website, and I bet you'll get a cease and desist from Oracle within a fortnight. Really? I think that, so. That's fascinating because I've noticed when you look at, you know, if you're searching through, I mean, I look at a number of consultants' websites over time who will offer expertise on things like Scala or Angular, and they've always got the logos on for things like, I mean, the Angular logos everywhere. Right. Uh, but certainly I haven't noticed the Java logo. You used to be places. able to when you pass the uh, Java certification exams, which we'll definitely talk about on a future podcast. Mm. That's a, a good topic. But one of the things you used to get from that when you passed was you got sent a little uh, JPEG that you were allowed to put on your business cards, oh, which was that which logo, was logo, which was interesting. But again, under license. So yes. I, I, I believe that is all still controlled to this day. But, um, but it does mean we are in the much nicer position now that when we deploy virtual pair programmers website, we can, we can download virtual images, which have, Open JDKs built in open runtimes, and we don't have to worry about licensing it. Is my understanding. If I'm wrong on that, then we might get a call from a lawyer next week. <laughs> well, let's hope you're okay. right. Well, we will port across to Microsoft within a fortnight <laughs> if that happens. There's your platform. Here we come. Um, so it's quite a it is quite a dry thing to talk about, but it is interesting to you know who owns Java and it. It bothers me a bit that it is still owned, effectively owned by a, a corporate entity. Yes. I mean, it isn't. I don't know if we want to talk about the Java community process, the JCP, this week. Maybe it's one for another, another week. But effectively, the future direction of Java and what libraries are added to Java, the things like Jigsaw, are all done through what's called the community process, which is theoretically open to anybody who wants to join but you know the likes of oracle are very very powerful on that yes i guess the interesting point for me or the, or the point that might be interesting for our listeners is that if you're running a company that is creating your own software and selling it mm -hmm. and yet you're not having to pay for the underlying resources to be able to generate that software you're not currently paying a license to yeah, anyone yeah. because you've got this assumption that it's open source yeah. it's i guess having that validity and that clarification can yeah. be useful yeah absolutely that used to be the case with desktop software de developed in java isn't done very often these days but used to be a huge problem that you could not put on your distribution cd the jd the, the java runtime needed to run that software so your customers either had to get it themselves. There was a technology called WebStart, which yes. was, I really like WebStart. I'd love to do a course on it, but no one uses it. So <laughs> we, you know, it's, it was lovely. It was really good. Um, but actually, WebStart's not open source today, I think, as I understand it. Um, 
but yeah, that used to be a huge problem. But now, yeah, absolutely, you can package the, the Java runtime with your application if you're in the field of desktop software. And of course, that's partly what the new Jigsaw, the, yes. the new J-Link is going to enable you to do. You could put on a CD a cut-down version of the JRE, the Java runtime, and that makes it easier do, to deploy your app. Do people still produce CDs? Exactly, so, yeah, well. exactly. <laughs> that, that's my point. Yeah, welcome to the 90s. Um I suppose I suppose there is somebody out there doing it. Well, but... actually, yes. I bought, I bought some. I won't name them, but a rather major accounting company. I've recently produced, bought a new version of their software, and I've resisted the online subscription version. So right. they've sent me a DVD. Yeah, a DVD yeah. rather than CD. But even so, yes, it does feel like old technology. But related to this is, um, I think it's, I think it's a bit of a shame that in Java we don't really have a figurehead. And it, we work in Java all the time. And if I, if I asked you, Matt, who's in charge of Java? Who's the, you know, there isn't really, Scott Reinhold is the kind of chief architect of Java. And he's certainly been very visible because he's the spec lead for Jigsaw. I honestly, I don't know if I'd recognize him in the street. And it's a, o, other languages have the benevolent dictator for life model. And I like that. Where yes. there's one person who will always be there as the kind of founding figure of your language. And might, might be a figure of hate sometimes, but at least it's someone that you recognize. And we just don't have that in Java. James Gosling was the closest we've got. And where's he now? He, very interestingly, has just joined Amazon Web Services in ah. a major uh, hire. It's unclear what his role is going to be there. There will be some kind of roving. I'm not sure how well that's going to go. He's a proper engineer, you know. He, I don't think he likes. He's an introvert. He <laughs> likes being in his office working on code. So as an evangelist, I'm not sure. He's very softly spoken. And this might be one of the reasons why Java has quite a bad PR record, really, that there isn't someone... Doing that evangelist job, yeah, yes, fighting yeah. its corner. So yeah. Pearl has Larry Wall and Scarla's Martin Adursky, and you've got Rich Hickey in Closure, your favourite language. But okay, you can stop you name know, dropping now. But... Java is, yeah, and, and all of those people you, you can identify. David Heinemeyer Hansen, of course, in 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 Ruby on Rails, um, and they're, and they're, and they're they're forceful figures. Yes, that you know you can strongly disagree with them but at least you know where you are with them yeah and yet java has this kind of weird complicated community process that's sort of difficult to love yes interesting. so um, interesting okay should we move on to yeah i'm not uh, sure i really answered your questions there but it's well i feel know. i mean it, look we i guess part of the reason i thought it would be useful to talk about this is that this isn't something that programmers generally talk about and yeah. actually it's one of those things that it's just to have a bit of a little bit of a bit of an understanding yes. a bit of background knowledge just in terms of being that fully rounded professional yeah, to understand the position of the the you know the underlying frameworks that you're using really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean well let's not do this today but my next question will be okay well how does the spring framework work then with in terms is that open source but let's save that for another week yeah okay um and Let's talk about, I guess, what we're doing at the yeah, moment. Yeah, the usual so, progress report, yes. which uh, might be... So you're very close to releasing Time Leaf I now. I am, actually, yes. Yeah. So Time Leaf is almost all recorded. Actually, it's all recorded, but then I've realised I've missed out a topic that I'd like to cover. So I want to go back and review the chapter on creating forms and... It's actually about representation. So it's probably very boring because you haven't yet seen the course, but it's around how you use Timeleaf to display errors on a form when a user's done something that would break your validation. So I'm just going to go and be doing some editing, putting a few extra bits in to mm -hmm. make that work, uh, and then that will be ready for editing. And this is a very brave thing to say, but I'm going to hope we'll have that out towards the end of next week. Yeah, that feels uh, about that right. Be right. That feels so about right, plan. yeah. So next week for that. And I'm still working on Docker. Uh, probably not a lot to report. I mean, I've got the usual little tension of, uh, let's be honest, there are plenty of resources on Docker out there. There's even a pretty good tutorial on the Docker website. As usual at Virtual Pair Programmers, we've got to find an angle. We've got to do something that other people are not doing. The usual thing is we're going to tie it into like a serious practical, you know, something 
something that you would be doing at work rather than just hello world type examples. So the obvious thing is the, the, the system that we built on the microservice deployment course. I love that course, microservice deployment, but it's horrible as well in that, well, you've got to run just to get quite a basic system running. You've got to run 10 virtual machines. And I mean, you know, if you're, if, if you're at the start of a session, you've just got one chapter to go or something, you've got to spend like half an hour starting up every single machine and getting everything working. And, you know, it's obviously un untenable to do that in real life, but for a training course, it's what you have to do. You've got to keep things simple. Uh, so Docker's a perfect solution for that. So that's, I think, going to be the core of this course is we're going to make that a production system. We're going to manage it through Docker. So... Is is that the vehicle tracking? Yeah, the vehicle right? tracking a, system. A nice, you know, interesting concept and a quite a nice sort of case study, really. I think. Yeah, so, it works yeah. well. So that's probably what's going to take the time. It might be that I release. I think I said this on the last podcast, so I'm I'm really just repeating. But I think it might be that I just do a Docker 101, which will take me two days to record. Will be very basic and will not be amazing. But it will get everyone started, and then we can move on. The huge problem I've had, and I need your help on this, is, I mean, Docker is Linux only. That, that's a simple fact, because Docker is all about sharing a Linux kernel yes. with containers. And so the way it's always worked on Windows is you install a virtual machine. Uh, not a problem. I've discovered... Luckily, through chance, I've just upgraded to... We record on Windows for historical reasons. My development laptop is a Linux box. Um, and I, I may, I've just had endless problems installing. Um, I've discovered that, luckily, because my recording machine has just been upgraded to Windows 10, a completely different process for installing Docker on Windows 10. Windows 10 Professional as opposed to Windows 10 Home. I didn't even know there was a Home and Professional. Right. So it doesn't tell you that on startup anymore. Now, we have a corporate subscription, basically, for Windows. So we, we're on the Pro. Yes. I didn't realize that what I'm doing on my recording machine is going to be totally different So I would get 80% of our customers. If they're using Windows Home. So this is something I've been kind of kicking around in my head this week and I, I want you to be the arbiter on this we've always i think on every single course we've ever done at vpp we always take you through the installation steps in detail yes and um, we we really care about that i mean we don't want a flood of support calls basically um we want you to be able to do every step that we've done on our on when we were doing it <sighs> Well, I'm kind of thinking to record this. I would have to record it on a Mac. I'd have to record it on a Linux box, on a Windows 10 Pro, on a Windows 10 Home or Windows. I'm not sure now. We've got to the level of using Docker. I'm, a large part of me is thinking anyone watching a Docker course is at a pretty good standard of being used to dealing with these things. I'm sort of tempted to say there's the installation guide. Go off and do it. Obviously gives us a support call if you have problems. I guess if we go down that route, if we find we're getting inundated with support calls, mm -hmm. then we go back and record our yeah. installation chapter. Um, yes, yeah, so it's a hard one. I mean, I, I, the Hadoop course was the first one where we, again, the, the Hadoop course, the version at least of Hadoop we were using, you had to do it on Linux. So we went through the process of showing you if you're a Windows user, it was fine if you're a Mac user. If you're a Windows user, how to install a virtual machine, mm. how to then install Ubuntu on that machine. Um, and actually, what we learned from that, from the support course at the time, was that some computers are, have, are not capable of running virtual exactly. machines because exactly. of the hyper... I can't yeah, remember hyper there are, the there are extensions into in particular Intel chips for virtualization. Um, now, I've got a very weak development machine, almost by design. I don't like having an uber-fast machine for development because mm. that kind of puts me at an advantage that I don't want to have. 
what I'm I'm lying. I, I'm just too mean to buy an expensive machine. If it were for gaming, yes. I'd have the biggest rig imaginable with water <laughs> cooling and everything. But for those who don't know, Richard, actually, he does have that, but it's all to do with music technology right. rather than gaming. But anyway. <laughs> No, I actually use my music. Uh, my music computer is actually my development machine as well, and it's oh, okay. quite underpowered. Um, and it's actually an AMD chip that I've got, not an Intel chip. So what I'm not clear about at all is, I think in theory, I, I should be having problems running these virtual machines performantly. It seems okay, actually, but you've hit the nail on the head there. The problem with these with virtualization is, yeah, it's incredibly resource hungry. And we don't know what problems our users are going to face. I, I guess the other alternative, and I don't know how practical this is, is to say, well, if you're going to do this course, expect to be doing it on some kind of cloud infrastructure like Amazon Web Services. Bear in mind that you're going to therefore have to pay for that yes. if it's not part of their free tier. Well, you know, most people doing Docker, I think, would have done the cloud deployment course, etc., which was a quite a you're looking at probably twenty dollars spend with amazon to do that course for the things like load balancers quite yes. expensive this would be on a single ec2 instance and you, you do so, it on the so, free tier so. so maybe that's the route to go for this one um something just to keep at the back of your head and i have no idea if this is going to be useful or a complete red herring but i believe that it's currently in beta and what will be coming out in one of the future Windows 10 updates, possibly only for Windows 10 Professional, is something called the Windows Subsystem for Linux feature. I don't know if you've oh, heard of well, this. Oh, well, I haven't. Um, but so I know it's going to cause me pain. I so, well, uh, my, I, I've only glanced at a couple of things about this and it, it seems to be actually it's not about... Uh, well, no, it, it allows you to run certainly Ubuntu under mm. Winner. I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> under Windows uh, without having to set up a separate virtual mm. machine. How they've implemented it, how that works, I don't know. They're talking a lot about it being part of the creators update for Windows. Okay. I'm not really up to speed no, with any of that stuff, no. but it's something to be aware of that it may in due course, become easier to run sure. Linux stuff on Windows. But it's certainly not there right now, and it's certainly not in every well, version hyper, of Windows. Well, there's Hyper-V in my version of Windows, which is, you know, it, it's a hypervisor. That, so you don't need Oracle VMbox necessarily to do to do Docker development. Right. Um, so this is nasty, and it's not necessarily our expertise area. No. And we care a lot about, I mean, I... I always have in my head somebody excitedly starting a course, and when you can't even install the basic software, you know we're, we're going to get the blame, and the course will get binned, and it, you know it's a shame. <laughs> I, but I'm looking back to, in a chuckling to myself that if you go to our Java fundamentals course, we show you how to download Java from Oracle's website and how to yeah. install it, which yeah. is two clicks. I mean, you know, we, we don't. Yeah. You know, we, we, our, a customer who's got as far as or one, sorry, one of our learners who's got as far as learning about Docker. Yeah, they shouldn't need that, I would expect. Right. I guess we'll see what support calls we get. Absolutely. That is a... I'll, I'll keep thinking about that one. It's a, mm. it's a bit difficult. But just in a, just talking about support, if we can... We normally do kind of 10 minutes on future developments for the business. And I realise that if you're tuning into this podcast because you want to listen to all things Java, this isn't necessarily the sort of thing you want to hear. But I know a lot of customers listen to the, the podcast. So it's worth doing sort of virtual pair programmers news. Yeah. And it's been on our radar for some time that we could do with improving the way we do support. And I think this is a good forum for discussing that. Mm. So, I mean, I, my, my starting point is I think support is one of our best marketing functions. When we help somebody complete a course successfully, you know, we've got a friend for life there. And they're going to tell other people. But at, by the same token, I've got to tread very carefully here because I'm talking publicly. But we, we are a small company. If we're working on support calls all day, we're not going to record any new courses. So we've got to get that balance right. And I think what, what we did when we moved to subscriptions two years ago, we were a little bit, we were, we were quite firm in basically saying, if you're a subscriber then support will be very limited. Just, uh, yeah. I'll just add in, because a lot of our customers <clears throat> would have been subscribers and won't have been 
uh, customers prior to in the because yeah. in order to have been a customer who wasn't a subscriber, you have to have been with us for more than two years, mm -hmm. and at least half of our customer base have joined us in the of last course, two years. Yes. So it might be just as a bit of history. When we actually launched Virtual Web Programmers, we were charging a reasonably high price for each course. The idea being was what you bought was the ability to download and keep this course forever, but also the ability to contact us when you got stuck. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely, yes, a big selling point is that Unlike if you were buying a book or if you were even going to a face-to-face -face course, actually, you could come back to us six weeks later yes. and say, I really don't understand this point. Or, and I guess that's what support was about. It was about, I haven't understood something you've said, or I've tried doing this and I'm getting some kind of error that I can't solve. They were Indeed. the examples. Yep. And, and we worked, and I guess, yeah, when we went moved to subscriptions, part of the pricing model for that was that we will not be able to afford to provide that yeah. level and of you're support. Gonna, and we're going to have a lot more subscribers than we had yes. purchasers. So we would we would just be overwhelmed with support calls if we gave that level of support. Yes. Um, I, I think what we did, perhaps, is we went a bit too far, almost threw the baby out with the bathwater. That, does that phrase travel? We, we, <laughs> we kind of we lost the fundamental a little bit. So, for example, if, you, if you're a subscriber and you have a technical problem, you can't easily raise a technical support call and actually the way around it i'll say if if you're going to hate me for doing no, this i could feel it, it but fine. anyone listening to this is cares enough about us to listen to us so you know the, the way around it was people go on and say well i bought a dvd course and that kind of gets you through yeah. the process we haven't sold dvd courses for at least three years by the way but yeah you, know, you can still put it so on. <laughs> it's a way around and and actually you know it's a huge thing that as I said, if somebody started a course, and I mean, the classic problem we have at the minute is the older courses use older versions of Tomcat. There's huge problems running Tomcat on Java 8, masses of problems. So I, I imagine a new subscriber comes in, starts that course, can't even get Tomcat running. They don't see an easy way to contact us through the site. I mean, it's not that difficult, but it's certainly not, we're not welcoming it. No. And they give up unsubscribe and we've lost a good friend forever so i think we need a better way of getting that balance and you know the obvious idea is to open up the, the support make it more forum like an open q a section for every course for example would be quite welcome yes and and to be fair we we do have a an, an internally built uh, system that we use for managing our support calls. So although there's no public website for that, if you raise a support call, you'll get an email. You can respond to that email. It goes into this system we've built. Uh, but that actually means we have the history, uh, at least for the last three or four years, because we did change the system, and I don't know if we have the older database, but we certainly have the history for the last three or four years of all the support calls that have been raised. And one of the things that uh, we probably should be doing is going through that and pulling out some of the more common questions and answers and using that as a yeah. starting point for this. I, I know you've used the word forum, and yes, that is what it's going to be, but I'm, I'm picturing here that actually when you're on a course page, yes. there'll be a link to the questions and answers for that course. Great. Um, and actually that you won't be able to post into that forum, but if you raise a support call, which we're going to make oh, easier... Oh, I, I would open it up like to, to... I'd like to make it open. So okay. that is a, that... So it would be something like... Because it gives an easier route for a, a customer to... Yes. We'd, okay. mod, we'd moderate it, so if anyone posts anything... Offensive. I mean, if you had, <laughs> you'd need an account, wouldn't you, to do it? So you, you, you post something, but that can also hook in, in, into the support system. So there's a formal ticket raised against it. Maybe I don't know about that. Um, but I have done a little bit of work investigating this. So okay. the, um, the common software now for doing uh, forums is Discourse, which is Jeff Atwood's. So Jeff Atwood was the founder of Stack Overflow. He then moved on. Oh strange reasons um he moved away from 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 stack exchange and he started his own project to improve support forums it's called discourse okay and it's one of those things where you can pay them quite a lot of money for them to host discourse for you yeah or it's open source so you can download it and host it for yourself okay so my idea was if we could get discourse and somehow embed it because we don't want to re reinvent the wheel we do we do too much of that 
So we'll use this course, but embed it, and I think it's possible to do that, onto the course pages. It, uh, have I seen discourse in terms of certain websites, if they say they've got a news article on, and then people are commenting on that yes. news article, they can use that as a way to do exactly. it? Exactly. So it's su supplanting, it was Discus, wasn't it? That's, that was yes. the, that was a common way of doing it, but discourse... It's taking over it that. Is, it, it's been used in quite a lot of places to take right. that over. And so it's the embedding that's difficult, but just as a starter for 10, I wanted to see if I could get this course up and running. And it has some interesting parallels with the Docker course because they give you a vagrant file. Now, I confess I have done no production work in vagrant. I was just about to ask, what on earth is vagrant? It's been on my radar for a long time. Um, so... If I back up a little bit and talk about what the problem, we all know this problem. You need to run some software. And before you can run that software, you've got to install a database. Or you've got to install a Java virtual machine. Or you've got, you know, you've got to install something, configure things, environment variables, put this there, put that there, blah, 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 blah. And you do all this stuff. And you can't remember what you did. <laughs> Awful. Um, on the cloud deployment course if i go back to that it was always on my to do just to work through that course you've got so many things to set up and you've got to start virtual machines and, and you've got several repositories and very difficult to work with so what vagrant does it's a lovely way of working really and very very similar to docker uh, so when you download this course you get a vagrant file as long as you've installed Vagrant, which is an open source product managed by a commercial company, usual thing. But as long as you've got Vagrant installed, you just go to the root of that repository that you've just checked out. You type Vagrant up and it downloads and starts a full virtual machine, completely configured for that software that you want to run. Ah. So it's just a virtual machine manager, really. And actually what it does, if, if you're using OpenVM, but open vm boxes and it's a virtual box virtual box yes if you're using virtual box from oracle then it just talks to that behind the scenes so it fires up virtual machines and you get pre-configured images and all the rest of it right so it's a lovely way of working the only problem with it is that's obviously resource heavy everything's a virtual machine you need a lot of ram to do this yes <clears throat> But it's always been on my radar to do it. And that was actually going to be the last chapter of the cloud deployment course. Oh, okay. And because that course massively overran, I had to cut it out. So I've realized just in doing this work that we should definitely do a course on, on Vagrant. And effectively, at the end of the day, it's the same thing that you're doing with Docker. Docker's just doing it in a more lightweight way. Right. In that your containers are not entire virtual machines. They're just processors and all those processes are sharing one kernel. So it's the same principle, same results, yes. but sort of more resource effective. So Vagrant, I think, is, is going to be a course. Okay, and that will weeks. be, therefore, also about how to create your own Vagrant files. So if you're Absolutely. creating your own software that you want to distribute, yeah. people can do yeah, it. Yeah, and it's Great. dead easy to do. You actually, uh, the Vagrant file's written in Ruby, bizarrely, okay. and it does look pretty ugly. I mean, the Docker equivalent is a nice text file. Right. Anyone can read that. The Vagrant file is is nasty, <laughs> but it's a lovely principle. And okay. it's just something that's, you know, not crossed my bowels up until now. So it was in doing that research for the support system yes. that we might do that it's forced me to do that. So... Um, so the point of that then is we're gonna we're gonna improve the support the front end of support. We'll keep yes. the back end as it is, but we'll make it friendlier and more accessible. But we'll also make it clear that we, if you're a subscriber, we we can't have long extended discussions with you about the architecture of your system. Yes. That's your job. Yes. Our job is to make the courses understandable. And if you if you've got to chapter two and something's stopping you getting to chapter three, we absolutely need to be helping you. Yes. And that's that's always been true. I just don't think we sold that very well in the last two years or so. Absolutely. Absolutely. So good. we'll improve well, that. That's absolutely going to be an improvement that will hopefully then be coming in the next couple of months. Let's, yep. Uh, absolutely.
absolutely get to with it. Sounds about right. And uh, that sounds good. I was going to say, does that bring us full circle? Because Vagrant, in a way, then, is a way of making it easier to distribute your application. Absolutely. Which is what WebStart was when... Uh, or have I missed something? Sort of. <laughs> sort of. Web, WebStart just gave you a Java environment. Yeah. So... I was trying to give us a nice roundup, actually, there to end the podcast. That would be so. a ni nice round. The, you know, we what we could do... So a big problem we have at the minute is a lot of people trying to do Java web development. They're on Java 8. doesn't run with the Tomcat we give you. Yeah. Actually, doesn't run with a lot of the Tomcats. Really, for training courses, we should just give people a Vagrant file. And then that Vagrant file downloads a full environment completely configured for that course that cuts out everything you don't need to know for that course. The problem is you've got to know Vagrant. You've right. got to install Vagrant, <laughs> and it involves virtual. So we have come full circle in that, yeah, it, it, that is more, that can be more complicated just installing Tomcat. So, <laughs> yeah, in future, certainly for courses like cloud deployment, if I had my time again, I probably would do that using Vagrant. Okay. But I'm going to do it the other way around. We'll put Vagrant on the end of it and say, hey, this is how we could have done it. And look, it's all, it's yes. all done at the click of a button now. Okay, what's something for us to think about? Not much Java on this podcast then, which I feel a bit bad about, apart from that political discussion about Java. But in two weeks' time, we are going to the Amazon Web Services Summit in London. We are that important. We're special guests of Amazon, <laughs> and we're planning to record a podcast from there. So it's going to be all things AWS, all things cloud, possibly. So we'll talk about the alternatives to AWS. We're not fanboys of AWS. We're just users. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll report on any developments that we find there. And uh, so we'll, we'll try to make it a bit more technical the next podcast. Okay. There's the challenge for us then. Thank you for that. So we will see you, in quote marks, in two weeks' time. We're going to keep it every two weeks. Hopefully be two weeks. No, we'll see how we go for the two. It's because we're in London. We're, we're, we're based in the north of England. London, for those who don't know, geography-wise, is in the south. So Oh, it may as well be the other side of the world. Well, it's just, no, we'll be taking, obviously, some mobile recording equipment with us. Oh, yes. So just assuming everything goes to plan. Yes, oh, we'll the sound quality weeks. of the next one will be way inferior to the sound oh, well. quality of this one. <laughs> we'll <see. laughs> it's not going to be, is it? It's going to probably be better. Anyway. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, if you've stuck with us, thank you, and we'll hope for in a couple of weeks at the next one. See you next time.